and welcome to the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, how are you? You ready to talk about some modern Magic the Gathering? Oh, I look forward to this day every day of the week. Except on Mondays, in which case I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> also with us here in Chicago, it's the Godfather, Dave Harbarger. So excited to join you to talk about the three things that London does well. Fish, chips, and mulligans. In it. <laughs> in it. <laughs> Last but not least, it's the warden in town, Zach Colhan. I don't want to give away too much, but I do think that the death of mid-range may have been greatly exaggerated. Ooh, a tease. Zach is so good with the teases lately. 56%, baby. On this week's episode, we do a breakdown of GP Sao Paulo, then dive into the new mulligan rule, which we've been testing in Magic Online Leagues. Plus, we look at the modern Mox results, which have had the London mulligan in effect. But first, some housekeeping. Thanks are in order for friends of the show, Hoosh and Chris Bachin. We appreciate the very friendly reviews you guys left us on our iTunes. And also, guys, if you didn't hear on our last episode, we are going to be launching our Patreon in the coming weeks. Many of you have been asking for when we're going to do it, and it's soon. So if you aren't really aware, Patreon is a website. It lets listeners like you all support content creators like us and it's through a subscription model so we spend the time and some money out of pocket to create the podcast and you give us some cash back as much or a little as you want of course the show is always free right so we're not going to charging you for the show we just want to figure out a way to get benefits and rewards back to you who want to support the dive down and so last week we released a survey for everybody and we got a good response for that but we definitely want some more if you haven't filled out the survey yet, it's going to be in the show notes for this episode. It's also pinned on our Twitter, which is at the dive down, all one word. And really what we want to find out in this short little survey is what kind of Patreon benefits are most appealing to the listeners. So, you know, we're thinking things like patron posts where people like you can ask us questions, access to maybe a patron Slack channel, maybe some custom designed sleeves or deck boxes or play mats or stickers or pins or hats or shirts all that kind of stuff. So we want to know what listeners are interested in so we can craft the Patreon campaign for you. So please just take the two, three minutes, click the link. It's either going to be on Reddit, on Twitter, in the show notes, and let us know what you think. We welcome all input in our survey. So even if you can't support a Patreon financially, all of our listeners are invited to participate. And also, if you've already taken it, you do not need to take it again. But if you haven't, the survey takes just about two minutes, so you could probably do it on the toilet. Not saying you should, just saying you could. What such power we ha we all have in this modern world. Uh, last week we had mentioned that we have some prototype playmats floating around Chicago. Yeah, and also you know we'll be designing some extra. You know, depending on what the results of the survey are, we'll socialize designs of the uh, whatever swag we make with the community before we go out and make anything. So maybe we'll do some voting, some polls. It all depends on when I have some time to design sweet <laughs> sleeves and deck boxes and hats and things like that. Yeah, we're putting a, a lot on Dave's shoulders here, but you know he only has two kids and a you know busy gig, so he's got also all the time in the world. It's all about the love. 
I would like some uh, prototypes of fanny packs, if you don't mind. I don't know if we're going to produce them, but I want to imagine what one would look like. Keep your deck in it. Keep your dice in it. I don't know. Is it too late to add that to the survey? It's absolutely not. Because, man, now that you mention it, I really wish that I was a fanny pack wearer at, at tournaments. You put your deck in it. Yeah, it's a perfect size for a deck, a pen, some dice. <laughs> I don't need this big backpack. A Real talk. I used to do that. So I used to put just... Uh, uh, 60 cards, single sleeved. I guess there was a sideboard into one of those like really cheap ultra pro plastic boxes that fold into themselves into a fanny pack, bike to the card shop. The only problem is no room for play mat. Mm. And we've got these beautiful dive down play mats. Yeah. So you can wear one of those like tubes that art students have when they're bringing their presentation to class. Yeah. Like an architecture yeah, yeah, guy yeah. or lady. So maybe these tubes should be designed to also hold a deck box. We're, we've got a lot in R&D right now, but the Dive Down Swag Nation is growing. Yeah. A little peek into the minds at work here. All right. So let's hop over to Zach with this week's breakdown. What do you got for us at the news desk? So this week we'll be looking at the modern Grand Prix that took place at Magic Fest Sao Paulo. So this event was only text coverage, so not a ton of info, not a ton of fun, sweet plays to look at. So, yeah, I know. Burns. It's always really fun when they have them. It's, you get to see some cool things, and like we'll see each other short clips, stuff like that, about really interesting plays or sequences. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that we get out of, out of these tournaments generally is a report on who went undefeated on day one. And it was a pretty interesting list. Only three decks. That's about what you get nowadays, I think. Yeah, I mean, especially with the way the field is right now, and we can talk about that later, where it seems to be a lot of decks coalescing at the top with a lot of singletons at the bottom. So the day one undefeateds were, is it Phoenix, Boggles, and a Just Guy Control, which we have not seen in a little bit. Yeah. I also would really love to see the list that the Just Guy Control player was running that they managed to go undefeated with. Unfortunately, um, there was a big archive of deck submissions released from this, and that was one of the ones that was not in the archive. Oh, because, because of course... They yeah, because they submitted a paper deck list instead of a uh, an electronic one. Oh, is that why that spreadsheet they released of all the day two decks isn't complete? Is because they're not the electronic that's, ones? That's what the note that came with it said. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Maybe we can do some hunting de- detective work, maybe with the help of Dive Down Nation. Yeah. Try to... Try to find we, this we can, player. We can do like Toby Hanke did with like his giant bag, garbage bag of deck lists. Just running up to strangers in the street, pulling them backwards and saying, is it you? Are you the control? How, how many cryptic commands were you running? Was it three? Was it four? How many outs? Yeah. I'm sorry. It's oost. So moving on to day two of the tournament. So 227 players made day two, which is, it seems like a whole lot to me. Yeah, it's like three times as many as like an SCG open. Yeah, so, it's, a, it's always a good reminder that Grand Prix really are bigger than the SCG Opens. I mean, the SCG events are awesome, so no no shade there, but the GPs are always quite a, you know, a, almost an order of magnitude bigger in some ways. So we're going to take a quick peek at the Day 2 metagame breakdown here. So in first place, we had Is It Phoenix with close to 13% of the overall game, 12.8. Versus Death Shadow coming in at 10%. Tron at 8.4%. Hardened Scales and The Rock, both at 6.6. And then Humans at 6.2 with all their decks below 5%. Wow. Yeah, it's falling back to Earth. Well, okay. Yeah. Let's not get too crazy yet. It's one event where it fell back to to Earth. Yeah. It's one event and it's still the number one deck. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's good to see the, to see the potential for it, for Phoenix returning to the, the pack. 
but um, I wouldn't take this one result as being uh, a trend in any way. Sacrosanct, if you will. Why do you think Grix's shadow is 10% of the room here? Like, is it doing... It doesn't seem like it's doing anything particularly special against the wider metagame. Is it just a quality deck? Do people just like it? Um, I think one thing is that it performed very, very well at GP Calgary in the hands of Sam Party, and I think that people, a lot of people probably picked that up because he's a well-known pro, well-known um, competitor at events like this, and so I can imagine people being inspired by that. I also just think that it's this is one of those things where it's the churn of the, the second deck in... Uh, the order of the metagame is just going to kind of change over and over again, even if um, you know, even if Phoenix stays consistent at the top. I don't personally feel like there's anything super special that that Grixis Death Shadow does against Phoenix, particularly. But um, I could be wrong about that. It just feels like it's a, it's another deck that's competitive in the meta, just kind of having its moment. What do you think, Stan? After playing a little GDS lately. Yeah, I would agree that it's not necessarily doing anything special, and it didn't make to top eight either. So, to me, that could be any number of factors. Like maybe there's just a bunch of Grixis Shadow players in the room, the way that a lot of people like bringing mid range to tournaments, and no one wants to play Jeskai Control anymore. So this is one place all those Jeskai players may be going. It's it's hard to extrapolate what causes a meta share for a single tournament. Yeah, I agree. So. I think it's cool that it's the second most popular deck, even though perhaps some of the numbers that speak to its performance aren't all that impressive. But we'll get into that later. So the top eight from this event, we had Tron coming in first. Pretty stockless, nothing too exciting there. In second place, though, we had a pretty interesting humans build. The sideboard choices were a little deviant from the norm. Typically, humans is running a sideboard that's almost entirely creatures. And this one had Chalice of the Void, in addition to Dismember, and Damping Sphere. Yeah, one thing I noticed looking at this list is that it's cut back on Ancient Ziggurat, so there's only two of them in the main. So that should help you a little bit in casting non-creature spells. Yeah, we have another humans list in third, also with... Uh, the sphere and dismember in the sideboard. No chalices for this one, though. Fourth, we have boggles. Pretty stock list. Nothing too interesting there. Fifth, we have a titan deck. And this one has an interesting sort of a red-green mid-range package. It has a main deck Inger of the Gods. Two of them, in fact. Mm-hmm. And it's a couple of flame slash. What? Yeah, exactly. It, it, it almost looks like the attempts I've uh, tried with red-green scred in the past. Sometimes titan shift will run, like, these red spells for removal. Interesting. I don't think I've seen that before, but I definitely believe you. I think I noticed it come up a bit when we were doing research for the old Amulet Titan episode. Oh, it's it's so long in the past, I can't even remember. It's been a minute. Sixth place, we have the little burb that could, and Phoenix is there. And this one, the only, I don't know if it's interesting or worth noting at this point, but there was a Rao Zarek, the new one, the big Rao in the sideboard. Noted. Yeah, gotta get that value <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Seventh place, another Phoenix deck. And then finally, pulling up the rear, we have Burn. And this one had both Skewer and Light Up the Stage main. And it was the red-white build, not the red-black build. Ooh. Yeah, a couple Light Up the Stage just for the card advantage. Nice to see something other than Phoenix win, right? Yeah, Tron too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as much as I don't want to play Tron myself, I respect all the people who choose to assemble assemble it on a, a weekly basis. So I think that's great. If memory serves me correctly, you walked off the set of our Tron show, so 
yeah, I mean, we, we were under intense contract negotiations at the time, so there was other stuff going on that wasn't apparent to the listeners, but... A little <laughs> peek behind the dive-down curtain for the nation. <laughs> you too can get dive-down shower curtains through our Patreon. So now we're going to look at some uh, data provided by Frank Karsten on the day two win rates from this uh, tournament. Yeah, I'm just going to repeat how much I love Channel Fireball giving us more access to information that we've really had before when it comes to just hard data from their modern GPs. So he let us see what these top archetypes were doing on the day two. Um, and so we have Is It Phoenix at a mere 50.6, 81 and 79. Grixis Shadow at 45.7. So it definitely fell off in the day two there. As Stan mentioned, didn't make the top eight. And only one copy in the top 16, I believe. And that went 59 and 70. Tron, 56.7 at a 68-52 win rate. Hardened Scales, 55%, 52 and 42. Green Black Rock, 41.6%. Doing mid-range things. Mid-range is dead. Still sub 50% at 37 and 52. Move along. And Humans, 68%. Completely outrageous. Uh, defying everything we know about modern. This is clearly an aberration. I mean, decks don't run 68% for any length of time. Not even the best decks that modern has seen. So, But still, that's an outrageous performance by the humans players on day yeah, two. I mean, it really second is. and third place for human players. Yeah, I mean, it explains why there were there were two in the top eight and two more in the top 16, so that four of the top 16 decks were humans. Humans has been doing well. Um, we might mention this later, but we saw humans do really well online over the weekend as well. So humans is killing it. This, the game, the the meta game does shift, does change. So, what do you guys think of the results of this? As we're going into the, um, you know, into the Mythic Championship, there's one more Grand Prix between uh, the recording of this and the Mythic Championship. Anything change here for you? Worrisome? Any alarmist Phoenix takes that anybody wants to give this week, or do we feel good because Phoenix didn't win and we can talk about Tron instead? I think that any of the decks that change is listed are perfectly fine decks to bring to a big tournament. I, I would. Hedge that with bring a deck that you know and are good at playing, but I think Phoenix, Grixis Death Shadow, Tron, Hardened Scales, the Rocker Humans are all fine decks to sleeve up and bring. Yeah, I mean they're the they're the class of the uh the class of the format. The only ones I would throw onto the list would probably be Amulet Titan and um Burn would probably be the other ones that deserve to be on a list somewhere. Uh you guys are forgetting about Dredge, which is Oh, I forgot so about Dredge. Dredge. Yeah, where's Dredge? Drastically underplayed, that's why. Maybe all the GDS players were Dredge players that moved over. Maybe it's a local thing. Who knows? Yeah, there are regional, you know, country-wide metagames. I'm sure the metagame we'll see uh, over in Asia next week will be a little bit different than this, too. It's so weird and interesting that Grixis Shadow with a 45% day two win percentage. I said percentage twice. That's okay. It's just, it's so interesting to me that it was able to convert so many decks from day one and then struggle so much in day two. And it makes me wonder, like... Were these players just really lucky in all their day one matchups? Were they just outclassed by the players in day two? Sometimes Grixis Shadow just doesn't find its threat and loses the game because of that. Is that maybe what was going on here in, in droves because there's so many of these players? Well, I have an idea. What is it, Dave? And this is only trying to intuit from the day, uh, day two win rates and the day two uh, metagame shares. But does Grixis Death Shadow struggle with humans? By any chance? Oh, <laughs> I've, I've yeah, heard it, it does. Would, yeah, it would seem like it. they're able to go pretty wide and they have evasive threats as well. Not to mention what Reflector Mage can do. Bounce a Gurmag Angler. Yes, wolf. exactly. So 
Um, I think that that might be, those might be connected things that in a wider field it did well. And then when all the humans decks made it through and Grixis, Grixis Death Shadow kind of ran into that 70%, I mean, that might be part of the reason that the humans win rate on day two was so high was that there were so many Death Shadows decks to play against. Mm. I mean, also humans can have a perfectly good game against, uh, is it Phoenix? I mean, it's. His a Phoenix wants to flip a thing in the ice, and when you've got Thalia, Meddling Mage, Reflector Mage, it makes it tough to flip that thing. That thing, that thing, flip that thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Phoenix fits in the, a similar bucket with Death Shadow in that they're a little threat light or only have a few threats they're really trying to resolve. So if you can prevent them from sticking one or having one ever cast, they're sort of not doing anything. They're just drawing cards, casting spells and drawing cards. Scry one, scry two, discard one, discard two. Yeah. Serum Vision? Serum Vision? Pass. I love when that happens. Do you buy or sell the statement that Faithless Looting will be banned before Mythic Championship London? Shane? I don't think it will be. So, I, think we've, I, think, I think we've all been selling that, right? I mean, it's just... it's. It, I, I was buying it last week. It's just too close to the MC. They're not going to do it. I'm still on buy. Really? You really think it's going to happen? Or are you just trying to be like devil's advocate here? I'm trying to be contrarian here. <laughs> I'm trying to stick to the, what I said last week where everybody was like, the sky's falling. It's 25% of the meta and 75% of top eights. Oh, no. <laughs> 75% of top eights. <laughs> oh, good Lord. This top eight, it's, it's, it's six Phoenix. It's like memory jar. Yeah, that's funny. That's a callback for any old old listeners. All you old heads out there. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break now, and when we return, we're going to dive into the London Mulligan. We've been testing it in Magic Online and going to go over some results from Magic Online tournaments that had the rule in effect. Stay with us. London Mulligan. Noun. Draw seven cards, then for each time you've mulliganed, put a card on the bottom of your deck. So, uh, so, so guys, magic has a new big rule. A fundamental rule. A rule so big that they are willing to name it after a city. Well, isn't the current one the Vancouver mulligan? Yes, and the one before that was the Paris mulligan. And most people don't, don't realize that because that was instituted in 1996. Um, so... In an effort to make Magic have less non-games, or so, this is what Wizards of Wizards of the Coast tells us, quote unquote, they've decided to experiment with a new mulligan at starting with Mythic Championship London, and I suppose most of our listeners have heard about this. Stan just elegantly defined it above. Um, clearly, this type of rule change will have big implications for every format, but in particular, it has applications for modern where so many decks in modern are reliant on drawing specific combinations of cards. Yeah. Dave, you mentioned this is an experiment. Did they experiment with a Vancouver mole or was it just so obviously a good idea that it was just like, here's our new rule. I believe they did experiment with the Vancouver mulligan and I believe they did it similarly where they experimented with it at a, a um, pro tour in Vancouver. And actually the Paris Mulligan was also maybe not an experiment, but I think it started out at a pro tour in Paris. Please Dave, they've retconned all pro tours are now mythic. Oh, they retconned even, yep. even in the past I have to refer to them. Yep. I don't know who else was playing, but I was playing modern when the Vancouver Mulligan was instituted and there was a, 
not quite similar to this vibe, but people were not happy about it. And people were very worried what it was going to do to the format. And a big concern was that scry was hard to remember and it was a mechanic and it wasn't inherent, etc. And I think we all agree that the Vancouver Mulligan is fine. It's nice to scry away dead cards. It's nothing wrong with it at all. And obviously I think this is a bit of a magnitude different in the change they're doing, but there was a, a similar perception at the time. Yeah. I mean, again, just to underline what they're trying to do here is it's they're trying to reduce variance in opening draws so that people can get around getting mana screwed or can get around having bad draws or draws that don't do anything by feeling more confident in throwing back their hand and drawing a fresh seven that they can manipulate in order to um, you know deal with the ramifications of the mulligan. So anyone who's played limited is going to realize how good this is going to feel in limited, right? Because you can have a good number of non-games in that format and just never get anything going. Standard as well. But the speed and the power level of modern is so different than those two formats that that's why people, I think, including me, have an initial reservation to this because there's so many decks that can operate so well with just a small number of cards in their hand that we really need to wait and see. And we're going to have a discussion about that in this episode about what are the implications of the London Mulligan on modern? Yeah, and so I don't want to digress too much more into the abstract right now. I think that the main point is they instituted the Mulligan on Moto this week, starting last Wednesday, to give people a chance to play with it before the Mythic Championship and ostensibly to get more data about what it's like to for, to have games with the London Mulligan. So why don't yeah. we dive into what it was actually like to play with it, what results we saw, what kind of decks we saw, changes the results of it. Because there has been, as Zach kind of alluded to and Shane alluded to, there's been a real kind of sky is falling vibe around this on social well, media, me. not just from you, but from, from lots of people where it's been kind of like, you know, the tweets that you see include things like, um, people earnestly talking about how broken modern's going to be after this. Other people saying it's incredible. It's going to fix the game. I mean, Ben Stark has, has said a couple of, had a couple of tweets that were out about how much he was co-signing for this rule change. Um, well, Ben Stark only plays limited, right? No, he. I mean, he he has to play more than that since he's in the MPL. But but mm, yes, yeah. he is known as one of the greatest limited players of all time. But you know, I thought that the, the best tweet that I saw about this over the weekend was from Allie Warfield, who her tweet said, "Half of Magic Twitter, London Mulligans once. Wow, this is so amazing for the health of modern. Other half of Magic Twitter, London Mulligans once. Holy hell, this is so broken. Every format is ruined, and the world is ending." <laughs> I mean, she. That sounds like that sounds like magic. She also does a great job of summing things up uh, pithily quite often. I thought that was a very good one because, yeah, it sounds like a lot of magic when you put it that way. But also, in particularly with this, I mean, I did a lot of kind of trolling around on Twitter this weekend to see what people were saying. You know, reading days and days back of tweets, and it really is that divided where people are kind of like best thing ever, worst thing ever. Yeah, and I think we can strike a balance. I mean, that's the whole point of this conversation is what are we actually seeing? What are we actually experiencing? And what can we wait and see on? Yeah. So I think the first thing we could talk about quickly was sort of the hype machine that started right after the rule launched on Wednesday. So immediately after the rule launched on Moto on Wednesday, there were started to be kind of people posting on what decks they were going to try out on, you know, st streamers posting and and other people just kind of posting about what things they were investigating and sort of three themes emerged one is um the cheerios 
lists. The yes, Ramos. Yeah, SRAM deck plus Pure Steel Paladin. A lot of hype started to build around that deck, and it seemed like people were playing that on streams, playing that on their own kind of leagues. Um, for people unfamiliar with that deck, it's a deck that casts a bunch of zero casting cost artifacts with SRAM in play in order to kind of generate a bunch of tokens. It sometimes uses Monastery Mentor. Um, it uses Pure Steel Paladin to draw cards. Yeah, and then they basically it's it's a really weird storm deck. Then they just finish it off with a grape shot. Right. So Monastery Mentor is sort of an alternate win con. And we talked a little bit about this deck last week as well, as it turned out when we were reviewing Monastery Mentor. But in between the time that we recorded last week's episode and when we're recording this week's episode, Monastery Mentor went up ten dollars in price based on the hype. Oh, that wasn't us? No, I don't think it was us, unfortunately. Oh no, it definitely was us. I think it spiked <laughs> before our episode even came out last week. People anticipated our content. Was that the Patreon? With the Patreon feed that we have for people? <laughs> yeah, get your MTG Finance news yeah, early. From, from the dive down. Shut up. Well, I mean, we are going to talk about another card that some of us bought, us bought low here in a second, and that card is yeah. Serum Powder. So Serum Powder, for people who aren't familiar with it, is a three-casting cost artifact that taps for a colorless mana, and it has this text. Anytime you could mulligan and serum powder is in your hand, you may exile all the cards from your hand, then draw that many cards. You may do this in addition to taking mulligans. Okay, I finally just got this card. It's exile all the cards from your hand. Right. Okay. So basically you start with like six cards in exile. Yeah, or seven or whatever. And so this it's been used already in um, Colorless Eldrazi to put the uh, Eternal Scourge into exile so that you can cast it uh, into play later. So basically it's a way of kind of bumping up the number of cards that you have in your hand by purposely putting cards into exile and then finding ways to bring them back into a zone that you can play them from. But, and so... But the deck you're talking about use a different card, right? So, yeah, so that's the deck that was already in Modern. Now, given the way that the London Mulligan works, there's was there were a bunch of people posting on on Twitter about a kind of Narset combo reanimator list that used Serum Powder, Grizzlebrand, Narset, Gorio's Vengeance, Pull from Eternity, so basically uh, Relentless Assault, Fury of the Horde, like all of these different kind of like crazy cards that basically tried to cheat a card like either Grizzlebrand into play on turn two or Narset into play on turn two and then hope that you basically um, attack into getting to have her attack multiple times and get really giant sorceries from her triggered ability when you attack attack with her, like Omniscience and um, pull, uh, Enter the Eternity and things like that, or Enter the Infinite. Oh, sure, okay. <laughs> So it tries to get infinite combat steps. It tries to get omniscience or uh, enter the infinite into play so that you can pick up your whole deck and then cast all the cards from your from your deck and just kind of attack with her multiple times, basically. So this is the type of thing that was generating a lot of heat when people were talking about it, saying, like, this is this crazy broken combo deck that's going to totally, you know... I mean, some people, I think, were playing it for fun, but other people, I think, were legitimately scared that this is the type of deck that's going to come out of the London Mulligan being legal. Yeah, that makes sense. Does it? Does it make sense? I don't. I mean, we'll find out. We we definitely have a little bit of um, kind of information to go through here as a result of the the weekend of testing. I just can't wait to cash in on my, my copies of Narset Enlightened Master because I'm sitting on a whole lot of cons cards. Yeah. I know. You got that cons cube. 
I got that cons cube, man. Yeah. So another card that spiked in value because so many people were interested in it over the weekend was serum powder. It popped all the way up to $20, apparently, which was another one of those indications of everybody wants to try this out. Yeah, thanks for thanks for getting us in on that at like at five or six bucks, Dave. Or three or four. Dave, you got me you got me in on that at two dollars. Yes. Time to buy. Time to sell, you mean. MTG, well, buy lists haven't moved yet, so keep an eye out for that. But anyway, so by the end of the weekend, by Sunday, after five days of playing the London Mulligan, it didn't seem on Twitter like any of the reactions were really calming down. Lots of people. London Mulligan is the worst thing I've ever seen. I saw there's a great post that I saw from a player named uh, Jacob Fusco who posted a turn two kill with Amulet Titan where he was attacking with three Titans and had a fourth one in play, it looks like, on turn two, which is incredible. Yeah, he, he has he has seven lands in hand, no, seven lands on the battlefield, three amulets out, and six cards in hand. And four Titans in play, <laughs> I think, right? <laughs> I wish I could see his graveyard. Yeah, I know, right? I, all I see is one Summoner's Pact. Yeah, but I think that, um, you know, it's interesting how much of the conversation around this has been just around modern versus standard and limited, which is kind of what Shane was talking about a moment ago. But I think we'll dive into that a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, I cannot wait to play limited with this rule. I mean, I the, the, worst, the best thing about limited is that it's limited. The worst thing about limited is that you have one copy of a card in your deck, so you can't control your openers anywhere near as often. So it's really going to smooth out the number of non-games you have and make it less of an issue, I hope. So with everybody freaking out, and we kind of knew everybody was going to be freaking out, what we decided to do as a group was just play some games and kind of report back to people what we saw personally in kind of a cold, calculated, objective, dive-down-y kind of way as as we could. So all of us on the dive down decided to play different decks this weekend to try to test out what it really felt like to play with the London Mulligan in a competitive setting. We, we had already played some games with each other casually, but we'd never done it in a tournament and never done it when prizes were on the line. So I think it was, uh, this was a good way for us to test out what it really felt like to use the new rule. I didn't get to play with you guys. <laughs> we offered to Skype, Skype you in, but you said that's not, and I quote, real magic. <laughs> Just because it's over the internet. I don't recall saying that, but I'll accept it. It sounds like something I would say. Okay, so we're going to go around the around the table and give everybody a chance to talk about the decks that they played. So I'm going to start with Stan. Yeah, I played Is It Phoenix, since that's the deck I have the most experience with in, in paper. And then I decided to do some leagues with Grixis Death Shadow as well. Um, in part because it's a deck I want to learn more, but also because I thought a hand disruption based deck could be worth experimenting with in the you know the revised format yeah yeah i loved that that take that you had about the mulligan a couple of episodes ago when we talked about it that thought sees might get a lot better i did see a couple of people also say the same thing on twitter this weekend by the way that anybody playing black should have four thought sees immediately so how did how do those two decks feel to you under the new rule is a phoenix i think is going to fall into the camp of decks that don't benefit inherently very much by the rule change I think largely because the deck itself doesn't have to mulligan that often to begin with. Uh, unlike Tron that's trying to set up like a turn three combo, for instance, or c- other combo decks, is it Phoenix doesn't really need to mulligan aggressively for threats, you know, even though it's relatively threat light because you have so much churn that in game one, I can see people keeping the same sixes and sevens that they would with or without London mulligan. It might just make a six slightly easier because... 
you'll almost always get that land, you know, that first land that you need. I think all of us are probably going to agree that game two and three, the mulligan gets a little bit more interesting and gives you more decisions to try to, you know, make and sort through. I mean, are you talking about, you're basically talking about looking for a certain sideboard card when you say that, right? Basically, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that even about Is It Phoenix, which is sort of only medium known for like sideboard card impact it's you know i feel like is it is much more about just kind of moving towards a more card advantage plan or a more aggressive plan or bringing in something to fight other people's hate cards it's a small mathematical equation that you do every time you sideboard and mulligan i don't know like sir match do you do a sand or just does one do it i am one i think uh grix's shadow was also a um my data isn't awesome because I don't have a ton of experience with that deck. Um, I will say that uh, game one, I think Grix's shadow doesn't change a lot um, in their mulligans because you're not really mulliganing aggressively in that deck to begin with, since you have a fair amount of churn as well. Um, but the first turn thoughts, he's might be more valuable with GDS post mulligan than I think a post sideboard turn one thoughts. Um, I, one, one of the things that crossed my mind is if you're an opponent who's playing against Grixis shadow and you know that you have to beware of inquisitions or thoughts, you might not be mulliganing as aggressively in games two and three. Yeah. Although I don't know if that's changed. Really, I think that that's a um, that's something you should have been thinking about before, and maybe now it's um, something to think about even more. But it's one thing that definitely I am bad at remembering when I know that I'm playing against a Thoughtseize oh, yeah. deck is that boy, I really should think about not mulling here so I don't get Thoughtseize down to five. Yeah, or even game one where you're like, is this hand somewhat Thoughtseize resistant? And if it's not, you know, you can put yourself in a world of hurt, especially when mid range is making a little bit of a comeback lately. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was the basic gist. I'll probably touch back on some more specifics later on as we start to consider the decks we played against and some of the decks we saw in tournament results as well. Yeah. So Zach, what did what did you try out with the new Mulligan? I did three leagues with Mono Red Prison and two leagues with Golgari Midrange, also the Rock. Man, look at this guy grinding. I know, I love it. Zach, get in there. So I chose Prison because I think it is a deck that is going to benefit dramatically from this rule. Because it runs dramatically, I want to hear this. It runs main deck chalice, and being able to jam a chalice on one, and it runs main deck blood moon, and being able to jam a blood moon or chalice on turn one is good enough for most decks, quite frankly. And being able to consistently get to that is really good. Mono red prison is a deck that, in my opinion, you mulligan to five or six pretty regularly, just because you draw hands that are four chandras and two lands. Okay, you don't get to keep that, or all your rituals and a mana uh, and a simian spirit guide. No, not capable either. Because the deck has so many, so much fast mana to it, you can draw the wrong half. So being able to go mm-hmm. through and craft a hand is very nice. So I, I'm just going to throw in the deck that I played here too, since Zach and I were sort of on similar plans. Because I was playing uh, Thalia Stompy, so I was also playing a um, a Chalice of the Void deck. Although I had the additional hit cards to try to play on turn one of Thalia and Leonard Arbiter. And I will say, as I've found over the last couple of weeks, you know, people love to concede against this deck. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's insane how many concessions you get on, like, a turn three Thought Not Seer, turn one Chalice. But I found similar things to be true 
Zach, which is basically, I felt pretty comfortable saying like, I know that Chalice is good against this deck, and so I'm going to go down to six and just try to get a Chalice plus a Gemstone Mine plus a land, or a Chalice plus a Simeon Spirit Guide plus a land, and just kind of like have my fingers crossed, because with so many options to of hate cards, it just felt like it was usually worth it to give it a shot at least on to six. Yeah, Stan said that he felt like this mulligan was particularly good in games two and three, and I feel like decks like Thalia Stompy or decks like Red Prison are almost playing a sideboarded game game one because of the hate they have. So when you're able to mulligan and look for hate like that, it feels that much more powerful. I found that with Prison, especially if you're trying to mulligan for a fast man accelerated thing, I won't mind dumping my hand of four or five cards out entirely just because of the way the deck works where it's all right this is what i'm gonna do if you can beat this then you beat my deck yeah i mean i found that thalia snoppy is a little bit different from that where where oh, sure. i'm trying to save cards occasionally because i have to kill my opponent with something but basically agreed where it's kind of like boy if i if i have a five card hand where i can chalice someone for one and then cast a uh, a reality smasher on turn four or you know somehow turn three occasionally then that's definitely good enough to just take somebody down most of the time yeah smasher's so good it's crazy i forgot how much i missed this card what about playing uh black green under the mulligan rule i feel like i really enjoy that deck i've never played it in paper myself until i took it out for a league i have friends that play it i've talked to people about it i've seen the deck many times i know it's a game plan uh i <laughs> our own shaniel himself is a rock man yeah, he he loves to like buy these decks and then talk about how bad they are, though. <laughs> At least I play them. At least I play them a little bit, and then I can talk about how bad yeah. they are. So it didn't feel as outright powerful as it did with Prison, because with Prison you're you know mulliganing for the hand that allows you to play four cards on turn one. That's not what the Rock is doing. But I feel like there were a couple times where I would draw some hands where I go, "Ooh, this man is a little sketchy." But I feel a little better going to five. And look at that. I'll keep two lands, a thought, seize a Tarmogoyf, whatever. We're good here. And mm-hmm. uh, I feel like it just sort of smoothed out things. It wasn't as bombastic, but I feel like there were a lot more games that were games instead of, all right, Field of Ruin, all right, Hissing Quagmire, all right, your go. Yeah. So, Zach, that's awesome. Thank you for that. all that. And um, Of course. But now Shane, I think, played the deck that people, consensus is starting to indicate that maybe benefited the most from the new mulligan rule because i haven't played dredge yet but no i played i played a couple leagues of tron so of course i played tron um i was going to split the difference between tron and dredge but i decided i just wanted a larger sample size of tron and so i played a couple leagues and what i think is it really benefits from the london mole in a way that i think is going to add at least a few percentage points to its overall win rate, which might put it up to like maybe 54. I don't know. But even over the, you know, the whole field is going to see a little bit of a benefit from the new rule, right? But I think Tron's going to see a little bit more. And this gets back to our Tron episode where we talk about the redundancy of the deck. And so there's many pieces of the deck that do the same thing, right? There's Expedition Map, there's Sylvan Scrying, there's Ancient Stirrings, there's the Tron pieces themselves. And so with the London Mulligan, you can just pitch these extra Tron pieces, maybe an unnecessary forest you happen to draw, any unnecessary threats. You just keep your path to Tron, and hopefully, if you're not mulling to like three or four, you get the right threat for the job. So just as a quick example, so like my, my very last match I played uh, today, it was a multi-four. 
and the seven that I got to see were two two tower, a power plant, a mine, and a carn, an ulamog, and a forest. So I would never see, you know, that four. I would never see the natural Tron and a Karn, right? But with, yeah. with that four, I get to keep just the Natty Tron, keep the Karn, hope my opponent doesn't Karn first because it was the mirror. You know, they keep their natural Tron, but they have no threat. I play it on, I'm on the draw. I stick a Karn liberated. They immediately scoop. Wow. Yeah, easy breezy. Yeah, I feel like that's something that Prison has in common with Tron. Exactly. I was thinking the same thing when you were saying yeah, that, Zach. That there's a, a select few cards that you're really looking for, and if, like, I'll keep a four that's like a land, a uh, simian spirit guide, a ritual, and a blood moon, and just go, hey, like, this is what I got. This is what I'm doing. And other times it'd be, go to four, three lands and a blood moon. Oh, I guess I got to keep, right? Because I'm not going to see a better three than this. And I've had plenty of things like that where it's, all right, a three drop and three lands. I guess, because it's not going to get any better. But here yeah. it's, ooh, what if one of these lands was fast mana or anything like that? For sure. Because, yeah, there's more redundant pieces to it, right? Because exactly. you're, you're trying to accelerate threat. You're trying to accelerate prison pieces out or threats out. Exactly. So ultimately, it didn't feel ridiculously better, but it did feel like over time I'm going to win a few more games than I would have lost. Interesting. Okay, well, let me ask you guys one question before we try to get some more objective data rather than just our anecdotes about playing, and that is, do you feel like you mulliganed more than uh, you did previously just for value, even? Like you were more comfortable with just taking a mull because you had a bad hand? I mean, with Tron, you have to mull a ton, and that was kind of a benefit of this in general is... Because I naturally mull so much with Tron anyways, it felt like I had much more of a chance to see a hand that would do something, especially like on a mull to four, yeah. which I do surprisingly often, maybe a quarter of games I would go to four. And I'm definitely much more apt to go from five to four just because, you know, even though if mentally I know that I need to go to four, right, but before it might be like, uh, this is an okay five. I'm much more likely to say now, okay, I'm going to still see seven here and piece together a good four for sure. Yeah. Stan, what did you think about playing on, on a deck more like, is it Phoenix or Grixis death shadow where, you know, you're not trying to draw into something broken. Right. So I think my decks are unlike Shane's and that they're not prone to mulliganing all that often. Um, Shadow might be more prone to mulliganing just because it has fewer lands. It's got 17 and it doesn't have as much cantripping. Um, uh, I, I think my decks were those that basically would feel better when they have to mulligan, but that's where kind of the great equalization is happening with this rule change. Um, I don't think that there are really strategies that are setting up potentially broken plays you know phoenix is somewhat different because it can set up a broken play but that's not always your plan a your plan a is mostly to just go through the whole deck so my opinion was that it felt better that you had better outcomes when you had to mulligan but it wasn't the case that i felt like i wanted to mulligan more just for the heck of it it's fair all right so moving on from what we saw personally there were a couple of events that we can take a look at the results of to see what kind of impact the London Mulligan started to have on an organized event of some kind. So there were two premier events on Moto this weekend in Modern. One was a Mox Playoff. The other one was a Modern Challenge. 
Um, both of them are events that we kind of enjoy looking at in the breakdown section uh, week over week, depending on what's going on with Grand Prix. They're typically pretty big or pretty high stakes events. So the Mox Playoff, I think, was a limited number of players that got invitations to it. Um, the results that we have go out to 62 players. So it's a pretty small field, but I think that there's pretty high level players there. The um, the challenge, of course, is usually a nine-round tournament, and so it's a big field of, of players in general. Dave, i got to ask, which, which one of these is... Are these both things you have to qualify for, or is it a challenge where you, like, you cash in QPs, or is it a playoff where you cash in QPs? So just to draw the distinction between what the Mox playoff is and a modern challenge is, so the challenges are regularly occurring events on magic online they happen every week there's four different ones there's a modern challenge a vintage challenge a legacy challenge and a pauper challenge um they are open entry events they cost 25 event tickets so it has a pretty big pretty big uh mm. entry fee but it is kind of like a small scg event or something like that because they have a maximum of 672 players allowed to compete in each one but i think that they sell out every week and so you see these kind of players who can't really get out to organized events, play them and play them really seriously. So you often see the same players up towards the top of the results playing the same decks week in and week out, because I think they're people who have set aside their time on like Saturday to spend all day grinding the modern challenge if they can. For example, you'll see Gabriel Nassif streams the modern challenge just about every Saturday. Um mm. The Mox events, on the other hand, involve some kind of qualification that I'm not as familiar with. And so you have to either cash in QPs to get into them or win a qualifier and then uh, gain entry into a playoff from that. And so I believe that the reason the playoff only had 62 players is because this is sort of like a second round Mox tournament. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the reason that we want to talk about the Mox playoff is because one of the players in the tournament, David Inglis, who competes under the name Tangrams and is at Tangrams on Twitter, tweeted out a table that had what he said, the quick and dirty stats from the Mox playoff, London Mulligan, 62 players. And so it had a breakdown of the entire tournament in this one tweet. Now, the thing that's really interesting, if you look at this table, is two things. He gave a win percentage. He also gave a number of decks within the field for each deck. The thing that's super interesting about those results is that the uh, deck that stands far and above at the top of the field is Tron with 13 pilots, where the next deck below that are humans and blue-white control with six pilots apiece. I think uh, going into this rule change, Tron was a deck that was oft-talked about by Shane and by other people that was going to immensely benefit from this rule change. So, And Shane mentioned, I think it was off-mic, that if he was going to bring a deck to a tournament, it would be Tron. So if you're bringing a tournament-ready deck, and it's one that's going to benefit from a mulligan change, I don't see any reason why so many people wouldn't bring it. Yeah, it was 20% of the field, so I think that, a lot of, like you said, a lot of people believed. Now, the problem is... If you look at it against win percentage, it only had a 52% win percentage. Which is just about par for the course where Tron is right now. Yes, exactly. So it didn't seem to benefit from the mulligan in an increased win percentage at all. It just had a greater meta share. I think that meta share could also affect the results of other decks. Oh, absolutely. Which we're about to look at. Especially in something that's only 60 decks or 60, yeah, only 60 players. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was interesting from this was that several decks in the field had 60 percent plus win percentages and more than one pilot 
And those decks were Humans, Dredge, Grixis Death Shadow, Jund, and Affinity. Yeah, those are all lists that I'd mentioned earlier. These are all perfectly cromulent decks to bring. These decks are going to win tournaments. So a deck that was sort of touted as very dangerous and new and people worried about what it could do, Cheerios, Ceramos, whatever you want to call it, playing those zero-drop artifacts and getting value for them, only showed up with a 44% win percentage here. Among three pilots. Yeah. So is it easy to disrupt? Is it that they weren't exactly solid with it because it's you know more of a fringe deck that they're taking for a spin? I don't think we have that information, but it just it didn't quite get yeah. there. It seems it did. It definitely didn't break the format in its opening weekend, right? No. Right, which is definitely what some people were, I think, unironically worried about. It's wild to me that, I mean, while it's not ridiculous percentage of the metagame, it's still like the eighth place deck among the 62 players it has brought out you know the formerly super fringe deck cheerios to this tournament yeah so the deck the so the tournament was actually between grixis death shadow and dredge with dredge winning Mm -hmm. so i thought that was pretty interesting that if you look at this one of the first like high level tournaments with the london mulligan the meta was actually pretty standard there wasn't really any new clear breakout deck it does seem like there were some kind of large spikes in win percentages, but this is also a smaller field, and so it's hard to say what's that. What's the cause of that other than people getting lucky and just variance. Yeah. I do want to point out a non-joke Dark Horse contender in an 8th place Grishelbrand, which is a deck that I oh, think yeah. is typically on the fringes, but maybe a little soft to itself, a soft to hate, because that's a deck where you can mold a 5 and mold a 4 and be like, all right, well scoop i can't win this game anymore right but when you're able to go okay land simian spirit guide you know this is the perfect four like it really benefits for what me and shane were talking about where if your deck really wants to be doing a certain thing very quickly this rule change really helps you and i am going to predict i'm going to do a called shot that we are going to be pre-rebanning of golgari grave troll levels of dredge in the very near future just because of the new rule change yeah, because of the rule change. Yeah, it just it benefits. It's already so powerful, and it benefits so much from the London Mulligan. I'm really surprised that only four people brought Dredge versus 13 on Tron, because I think based on the math um, in the deck, I mean, Frank Karsten, in an article he posted just like maybe three or four weeks ago, he said that you know the, the odds of a four-card hand with Dredge being like, you know, two lands, a card draw spell, and a dredge card goes up from 45% to 70% under the London Mole rule. So the sooner that people realize this stuff, the more they're going to be playing this deck. Does having a card with dredge in your opening hand, is it really that good? Is it is it that powerful in the deck that it's that mulliganing to th- four for three for one is really that worth it? You, are you saying, do you have to have a dredge card on your opener? No, he's saying, is it worth mulling all the way down to nothing to do it? Yeah, well, because it, it seems like that's what you're saying, is that the percentage is, is high enough that you can go to, okay, three, it's a dredge card, I'm good. Is the deck capable of operating off one like that? It's that important? Yeah, I mean, you can't operate off without a dredge card. I mean, Okay, there... so it's it's worth, you know, mull getting to oblivion and crafting the hand to get it? Yeah, it's just like Tron. I mean, if you, if you go back and listen to those two episodes, you, you just have to mull a lot with those decks, and it's just a, the bad part about them. I think, uh, Shane, correct me if I'm wrong, you have to mulligan to a dredge card and an enabler. Like, you need both pieces of that puzzle. Yeah, the the thing you want is the two lands, one that makes green, an enabler, and a dredge card. Yeah. The end. Don't you want one of them to be red because your enablers are red? Well, all of your lands make red. Not all of your lands make green. 
pretty much all of them make red. So one of the things that I alluded to earlier was the presence of Tron in the room maybe affecting the performance of other decks. And I wonder if that might explain why Is It Phoenix, which had five pilots, shared a 40% average win rate across them. I have a, a Phoenix question for my bird boys. Baka? Baka, baka. Um, when you sit down in your Phoenix and you see your opponent play a Tron land, what are the thoughts that are going through your head? Abject like, like legitimately, when you when you see magic is hard, <laughs> when you see that, wh- what is going through your head in that moment? How are you changing your game plan? Game one, yeah, sure. Game one, you're 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 not doing a ton to change it, I don't think, except to go as quickly as possible because in game one you don't have a ton of interaction that's good against Tron. The one exception is maybe you try to find like a set adrift if you're playing that um and maybe like bounce an o-stone or bounce a worm coil but game one i think the answer is speed cold hard speed game two you can side into a more controlling game plan because you do have blood moons you do have a braid um so it, it really that's one of those matchups where the plan changes pretty substantially between games one and games two but worm coil is always hard for that deck to deal with. Yeah, very much so. Worm coil is only manageable if you can either bounce it with set adrift, um, or like maybe you can time a thing in the ice just right and and bounce it back off that. Or you know maybe you've got a bunch of birds and and your pyromancer's ascensions online and then you can bolt snap bolt for sixteen damage that way. But it doesn't always work that way. So basically, although maybe Tron isn't the number one culprit for why Phoenix is going down in its win rate in this particular tournament, but maybe that explains why Wizards of the Coast R&D was a little bit reluctant to act on the Phoenix deck so quickly, because maybe they knew that the London Mulligan rule would affect the format enough that this one deck's dominance might, you know, let go a little bit. See, I was thinking that, Stan, but also I put no faith in uh, the powers that be. I think it's just a natural evolution of the metagame. The players have much more control over what happens in the metagame than the developers do. All right, so let's move on to the Modern Challenge, which, as we were talking about a minute ago, is a much larger kind of field tournament. We think that it probably had a max of around, probably had a full capacity of around 650 or so players. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, on, these are the, the size tournaments that used to crash Magic Online, and hopefully they don't do that anymore. Um, <clears throat> so this one was a little bit more um, kind of stable, I think, in some ways as well. But the thing that was really cool about this, at least from a personal perspective, was that this was won by a, a blue-red Kiki-Jiki deck that really looked like a list straight out of 2015. This is one of those things that just happens in the modern challenges sometimes where a deck kind of out of nowhere just wins it for inexplicable and unknowable reasons. And I think this was sort of another one that this happened. And I don't ascribe any of the fact that this deck won to the London, the existence of the London Mulligan or not. And the challenges are so wild. I would prefer to ascribe everything in these results to the London Mulligan in that none of these decks besides Tron were trying to really do London Mulligan stuff uh, in the top eight, at least, except for Kiki Jiki. I'm obviously being a little facetious when I say that London Mulligan had everything to do with Darth Kid's win of the modern challenge. But, I mean, it is interesting that the first big tournament we have with this rule change, it's won by a combo deck. Maybe not an Olin combo, the way it's something like Ad Nauseam is, but... Being able to, you know, 
Mulligan for the pieces you need to get to your combo is good. Or mulligan for good control pieces based on what the matchup is. Yeah, exactly. You get to flip-flop. Yeah, you get to flip-flop. But I do think it's interesting. The 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 top 16, like you said, Stan, is is a whole lot of decks that don't seem to be doing anything to exploit the, the, London, the London mulligan. And so... Yeah, just one Tron deck. Yep. Just one Tron deck. No dredge decks somehow in this in this top 16. And that's kind of it. One uh, white-red prison deck, which is ostensibly doing gemstone cavern into chalice kind of stuff. I, I think it's interesting that the second place controllers didn't run any miracles. Because I feel like miracles are a card that benefit from this mulligan. Because you're able to ditch the redundant... Co- that's amazing, right? You wish that wasn't in your hand. So it's even better now because now it's in your deck and you maybe get to shuffle and draw it later. Yeah, maybe they're just too slow right now and aren't doing enough to really impact the field. Yeah. So what do you guys think about the way that these kind of large events feel afterwards? Yeah, I was surprised. I was surprised that so many of the decks that we saw in these you know top 16s are pretty not pretty much not benefiting from the london mulligan but it's also you know stuff does take longer than i frequently think it's going to i sometimes i think that things will change instantly but they take much longer than i anticipated so yeah the way changes take place in magic it's very rarely all of a sudden one day a deck is doing this and it's wild and people are talking about it It happens but that's more rare it's more a slow change that happens over time than it's just oh this is deck's always been doing this. this is the way it does things I overall was more surprised by the lack of ad nauseum because I feel like that's a deck that really was going to benefit from this and something that I just have personally played a lot at local stores and have just really been like, wow, this deck is really close to just being the real deal. So not seeing anybody bring that out was pretty interesting to me. Well, it's very likely that someone did. They just didn't do well. (laughs) Well, that's yeah, I guess that's true, too. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely played against ad nauseum on uh, in my kind of leagues and so maybe that's a good transition for us to talk really quickly about the decks that we played against personally was there anything that really stood out to you guys as a pattern in the decks that you played i know that for me um the only thing that i saw was i i kind of played a bit it felt like i played a bit of extra tron um the other decks that i played against were chalice decks and ad nauseum and things like that and i felt like those were there before and maybe they're good under the mulligan but it didn't seem like it. I didn't see any of these kind of Cheerios, reanimators, any of those kind of decks. I didn't see anything too out of the ordinary. The the weirdest build I saw was a mono black devotion in a league, but that I think was some of them was just spice. The thing that I did notice is I played thirty two games total. I'm in the middle of a league right now, and I have seen nine chalice decks out of those thirty two games. Wow! Right, and all of these decks were running gemstone cavern to try to excel it out. Yeah, so. I don't. Once again, this is anecdotal. This is 32 games played over a weekend. This isn't anything super sure. But I saw Forward Prison. I saw Thalia Stompy and Mono Red Prison. And it, those Chalice on one is usually not very good against other Chalice decks. So ha, got them. But it's there were a lot of them. Yeah, I also played against the blue white spirits plus Chalice plus Thalia plus Meddling Mage deck, which is. Super weird, but I I saw that as well. So I totally agree that I feel like there's a ton of chalice decks floating around right now. So that's interesting because I played 20 games across four leagues and I didn't see a single chalice deck. Same. I did deal with a couple of Tron decks. I also dealt with a couple of counters company decks, which is another combo strategy. If we're thinking about combo strategies potentially getting better in the new meta, that's perhaps another 
deck that has sort of fallen out of favor over the last year or so, and maybe we can look at it as it uh, potentially improves in the months ahead. Um, Zach, I also played a mono black devotion deck, which I thought was pretty funny, um, as well as an eight rack deck. Um, and, you know, piggybacking a little bit off of our brief discussion on GDS, eight rack, which is just rife with hand disruption, seems like maybe this is another level two or level three play against a format that's starting to incentivize some decks to mulligan more aggressively. Yeah, so you're just you're thinking that because people will mulligan more aggressively than not, that they will mulligan down to just the key pieces they need, and you can snipe them out of their hand. I think that is a theory worth testing. Yeah, I mean, he's also saying that it's easier to have someone start taking damage from the rack and streaking affliction if they start with five mm. cards. I, I am saying that now. I wasn't saying that previously, but I wish I had because that's a really brilliant point. <laughs> Nice. Close it down. <laughs> I was thinking that every... I played only 10 matches, so the sample size is low. But everything besides the two Obzon decks I played, so 8 of the 10, I think were all decks that capitalized on the London Mulligan. So, you know, is that variance? Is that people testing things out? I don't know. There's a couple Tron decks, a Bogles deck, a Vengevine deck, Storm, the As Foretold Restore Balance deck... Uh, some a couple of Amulet Titan decks. I think all of those decks definitely benefit in some way from the London Mole. Yeah, so part of my decision for doing leagues with Is It Phoenix was in part to see how this deck, which doesn't necessarily benefit from the Mulligan, can still fare against a field that potentially does. So maybe that's part of what we're seeing as well with players who are just doing the same deck that they've always done is making sure that their strategies are still viable. And I think the the big thing that I would say about looking at all of this right now between the tournament results, between our anecdotal results is there's no like new broken deck here yet. There's decks that existed before. There's decks that probably get better than they were before, or decks that probably get a lot better than they were before. That's harder to tell. There's things that might change the overall composition of the meta, especially when people complain online or, you know, you know, we see a tournament where the 20% of the field is no longer Phoenix, it's now Tron. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's anything that's fundamentally shifted this format into something completely different from what it was already. And it's also one week. I mean, I'm not trying to poo-poo your thoughts there, Dave, but I think that, I mean, you, like me, might be looking for changes to happen very quickly. Like, this happens a lot when I look for cards to spike, where I'm like, okay, like, it's this card makes sense to me to spike, and it, it's a week, it's even two weeks, and it hasn't spiked yet. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, well, I should have bought that, because now three weeks later, it's jumping. And so I think that there's going to be some things that might be kind of obvious and people jump on, but some things might take a little bit of a while to percolate up. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've talked a little bit about what we've seen and so, and sort of what we've played with and what we've observed from tournaments, I do, are we ready to talk about the types of things that we think make a positive improvement from the mulligan, the types of things that make no improvements, that kind of stuff. I think we've got to for sure. Okay. So what are some general kind of, um, frameworks that you guys are going to be using going forward as far as what kind of decks the mulligan helps dredge and tron dredge and tron and, and the, re the reason of those is because like we've already talked about this they only need four good cards 
to operate. So one of the reasons I'm super hyped on these, not only because I generally enjoy playing them, uh, Frank Carson a couple of weeks ago wrote like a really Frank Carson-y article where he outlined some math on specifically Tron and Dredge. And so getting an opening hand that guarantees in turn three Karn or Worm Coil uh, goes from 16% under the Vancouver Mole to 33% under the London Mole. And with Dredge, if you want to aggressively mull to two lands, a card draw spell, and a Dredge card, that goes from 45% under the Vancouver to 70% under the London Mull rule. So when you can have your engine online with four cards 70% of the time, that's pretty darn good. I'm surprised it's not actually higher, to be honest. I mean, aren't you surprised that how little we saw Dredge in those big tournaments, though? I am very surprised because I don't know. I, I I keep banging this drum like I'm like some crazy dredge player. Like when I merely like it and respect it, but I think it's drastically underplayed based on all the statistics we have. I just don't think anyone wants to buy into that deck right now, and it doesn't use a lot of cards from other decks. So, but there's there's, there's nothing to buy into. It's just it's dirt cheap. Besides the the red green fast lands. Yeah, I mean the thing is, I think that. I feel like there's something going on out there because people aren't even renting it online and playing with it in these big events. So I, I don't know what's going on yeah. there. Maybe it's still a matter of no one respects it. Could be. I don't know. No one wants to cast free lightning helixes. Yeah. They want to pay red and a white. Right. Like our four parents. So a couple other decks that we think are improved from this are Amulet Titan, of course. I mean, the uh, the source of the turn two kill that we talked about earlier from twitter which is you know a powerful deck that can still do some really really wild stuff prison decks that zach and i have been very uh playing a lot lately you know stuff that wants to get a turn one or turn two a turn one chalice a turn two blood moon a turn one thalia turn one leonin arbiter like all of these different things i mean you know thalia is not really a prison deck but you, you get what we're saying it's the the ones that want to play hate cards very very early as a main main plan I think what I'm really talking about when I talk about these things is the power of Simeon Spirit Guide and how fast mana is really increased, or the power of fast mana is really increased by this mulligan. All the cards that we mentioned powering out on turn one, these cards cost three mana most of the time, or Chalice costs two. So the card that makes this all happen, the glue that holds together, is Simeon Spirit Guide. And I think that fast mana, being able to consistently get it and consistently have these powerful, you know, two or three drops on turn one is really what's you know making these decks good right now i agree and that includes some combo decks as well that would be really good uh i think under this kind of under the new rule as well including things like storm counters company ad nauseum grishel brand kiki jiki jessica ascendancy who knows where that list ends but it seems like any um deck that's trying to put together a certain combination of cards is going to be better with a london mulligan so one of the things that shane mentioned earlier was that this rule change is going to benefit the whole field and I want to touch on that a little bit more because I'm struggling to understand how that's possible. Since if some decks are going to get better and have improved matchups, doesn't that mean some decks have to get worse? So every deck's probably going to feel a little bit better to play, but some decks over time are going to realize that they actually are a little bit better to play. And that's one of the reasons that Watsi tries to hide data from us in so many ways is because they don't want people to have the absolute knowledge on what the win percentage of a deck is. They want people to sort of feel it out and that to evolve more slowly because of that. And so that's why things do take time. 
Although uh, with Channel Fireball sharing all this data now, I, I feel like there's certain aspects of that policy that might be changing. But the point is, the point is taken, I think, still, which is, yeah, the, the amount that decks benefit from this is going to be different. Things can all feel better to play, but some decks are actually going to have a slightly higher win percentage and some will have a slightly lower in correspondence to that. I, I wonder if one of the outcomes we're going to see is that more decks are closer to 50% now and that more games feel like a coin flip. Because if everyone's operating a little bit more consistently, and, and I, I want to mention, I'm kind of thinking about this through the lens of Is It Phoenix, which is a deck that's been powerful and dominant because of how consistent it is and can beat up on the decks that are stumbling a little bit, even though, you know, by and large, Phoenix is super beatable. If everyone is being more consistent and if everyone is executing their plan a turn or two sooner and we often talk about modern as a format of ships passing in the night do you guys think that maybe we're going to just see kind of an evening out of a lot of strategies altogether so stan i think it's an interesting question um i tend to think that if we have win percentages move towards 50 percent for decks themselves that it just gives more this is the type of rule that gives more players a chance to outplay each other uh, in a in in various ways, and so I think that this mulligan to me actually feels pretty skill rewarding, mm-hmm. um, realistically. And so it's trying to lower by trying to lower variance, it makes players that are better hopefully have better win percentages based on the decks that they're playing. Now I don't know if that's going to bear out. Uh, one of the first things I heard from someone that really caused me to look at Magic more competitively in a different way was how to get good at Magic is to m- minimize variance or minimize luck and maximize skill. I think that's really what Dave is saying with this, is that with uh, something like this, you have less non-games like we talked about, where you draw a five that's a keepable and go to a bad four that you just have to keep. Here you're able to craft a little better and go, okay, now it's I'm playing a little mini game right now where I'm looking at this seven and deciding what the four that gets me to victory is, as opposed to grabbing a four and going, well, all right, keep. And I think that's another thing that really is you're minimizing luck because you are looking at seven instead of four and you're maximizing your skill. I think that's a great point, Zach. I also think, Stan, that modern is really close to 50% already. Yeah. I think the I think the biggest swings we see are maybe like 45 to 55. And that is a metagame that any competitive card game would love to have. So does that sound like a format you guys want to play in? One where it's more skill dependent and more mini games? Or do you want to have a little bit more variance where people can get lucky and beat a better opponent? I prefer a metagame that's a little more skill-based just because I've moved to a more skill-intensive deck with Prison, and I want to feel like me learning these lines and me trying to learn the metagame is being rewarded. I don't dislike variants, but when it feels good, it feels really good. And when it feels bad, you go oh four one night and then you get to go home because you just ran cold and that's how magic works sometimes. So I think it's supposed to be more of less. That's how magic works sometimes and more. Hey, if you're smart, this is still going to be a game. So it feels like the discussion is moving pretty quickly to the, the kind of ultimate question about this, which is, you know, we've had some time to look at a couple of really initial results from big tournaments. We've, all of us have tried to play a bunch of games over the last five days in order to see how we felt about the new rule. So my question to everybody is to close up this discussion is, do you, are you hopeful that they keep this rule even when it comes to modern, or do you think that they should, should go back to the Vancouver mulligan? I like it. It makes mulligans feel a little better. 
it makes them also more interesting too especially in game one when you don't know what's important if you're playing an interactive deck so what we mentioned earlier about how this may be a change that benefits more skill intensive players that sounds kind of appealing to me not to mention like the number of non-games that i've had because i've had really bad luck from drawing up a crappy five and then a crappy four and then having to keep a bad three like if if the rate of that goes down then i think people in general will be happier especially at the lgs level stan i think that you maybe underestimate a little bit about how the competitive metagame then trickles down to the lgs level and like of course like regional tournaments right um i think that if this ultimately creates maybe a less healthy or a less balanced competitive metagame it's a net negative to the format right but ultimately i think it still remains to be seen um you know the percentages that karsten mentioned for the decks people really don't like to play against like dredge and tron um they are significantly higher to have a successful hand post mall but i think it really is going to take a little while to feel itself out but i am hopeful that everything is balanced zach what do you think I did feel happy with it. I had a good time, and I didn't feel like I was frustrated or felt like I had to deal with any more nonsense than typical. And I didn't feel like I had a lot of games where it's, oh, of course you have that. Of course that happens now. All right, concede. It felt like games were still normal and fine. Maybe even we had more games than non-games. I I really think that playing with Gemstone Caverns has made me a little better at putting back cards, and I just get to play like three Gemstone Caverns every game now, in a way, but without the payoff. Yeah, I mean, for my part, I I do worry a little bit that there's going to be broken cards in Modern that are going to need to be fixed really quickly. And I think that, you know, the Mythic Championship might be the best place for us to see how that stage evolves. Yeah. The, the early indications are that there's, there isn't anything that's happened quite yet, at least as far as bringing something, to, a new menace to the format. It might make some decks that already exist a little too much. But I think ultimately... For me, playing with it, it felt pretty good, and I, I likely, right now, I'm kind of a, a pro keeping the mulligan, depending on what happens at the Mythic Championship. I am concerned about the legality of Simeon Spirit Guide. I just mentioned how good I think it is. I don't think it'll be emergency banned or anything like that, but I think that is a card that gets particularly good with this, as I mentioned earlier, so... I would like it to be around. I think it's a fine card, but I could understand that maybe a different it comes along and just does some consistent turn two nonsense or something. Yeah, agree. That's definitely one of the problem cards that we should be keeping an eye on. Can we agree that it would be a good thing for modern if, let's say, nothing so broken and dominant as like an Is It Phoenix or um a kci happens again but we start to still see new decks emerge and like maybe grishelbrand starts to eat up a little bit more of the meta share just because it's you know a turn or two or three more consistent and becomes a a viable strategy yeah i i think there's always going to be a quote-unquote best deck right and i don't think two people have a problem with that i think it's when it posts enormous meta shares and, and it's all gonna be shaken up with modern horizons anyway exactly we don't even know that's gonna be so much fun guys yeah. So the real deal for me here, though, and that I feel like it's going to be implemented in modern. So I'm extremely happy with the fact that um, it doesn't look like from early stuff that there's something that's particularly broken. I'm sure that'll change over time as people figure out what what to do uh, and how to abuse the the rules. And maybe it only goes so far. But the fact is, these felt like 
better, more balanced games of Magic in general, all things aside. And so I feel like the concept of the rule is pretty good for the game. And so if it's good for the broad number of players in the game, uh, we as a modern community are just going to have to go with it. And the the, the modern format is going to have to change to adapt to this rule. I don't think the rule is going to adapt to maintaining the modern format. Yeah, you're right, Dave. Sad but true. Fair but tough. I wasn't expecting quite so much consensus there at the end, but okay. End it. All right, guys. Thanks for that interesting dive into all things London. I don't know about you, but I feel a bit more British, don't I? Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are going to take some called shots about the MC in London, the namesake for the Mulligan Rule. Stay with us. So have any of you all actually been to London? Because I have not, and I really want to. I've been twice. Twice? Look at this guy, world traveler. A couple times. So one time I, I, I've actually even flown over downtown London in a helicopter for a photo shoot while the photographer hung out the side of the helicopter and uh, we just watched a lovely sunset while we took what pictures. What in the world are you talking about? This is my, this is my glamorous day job that, that you guys believe is super boring. I actually travel the world, do photo shoots, do all kinds of crazy stuff. That can't be true. It's 100% no. legit. Was the photographer hanging on to the helicopter by just their hand? No or harness. Did they have some kind of system of ropes. The adrenaline has to be pumping. He he was just <laughs> hanging down from the from the the legs below it, and no, he was he was strapped into the open door. We flew over St. Uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, the London Bridge, and the uh, the Gherkin, kind of back and forth in a triangle, getting shots with like a super wide fisheye fisheye lens, doing all kinds of city shots. Basically, it was wild. I sat up in the sick. front with like a headset on. Yeah. And then did he turn to you and say, David Harbarger, in 2019, there's going to be a mulligan rule change. We're going to talk all about this. <laughs> he did. He was like, vision, this is a vision of Mulligan's future. His eyes it's were rolled back in his head, just the whites exposed. Yes. I'm really upset that you waited until now to told me that you met a man with future yeah. information. This would have been helpful for the past four months we've been doing this, but you know, this was also during a time that I wasn't playing magic. So it was, uh, it was really weird to me that he wanted a to talk timeline. to me about Mulligan's a dark timeline. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. What do you mean? So guys, I'm really, I've been thinking a lot about the mythic championship, like a lot about the mythic championship. I've, I, I'm not even close to playing at this thing and i've i've like level forward it already okay but i want to know what, i want to know what you guys think you brought your transformational sideboard 75 tweak it it's tough for anything to break out of of uh i'm still going to be looking for is it phoenix to do good i guess is what i'm what i'm saying here is that if they're not going to make any changes i feel like that's just kind of where it's at i don't know what do you think stan yeah my eyes on the bird um i just want to see how dominant it could be and you know well, it, it's clear that Wizards is sort of waiting on the results of this tournament to kind of decide what they want to do with this deck. So that's where I'm at. Based on my four leagues, I didn't see enough, you know, on Magic Online to feel like it's going to make a huge change on the format. And I think most players are basically just going to come in with the deck that they know best. But don't you guys think that people might just be like, okay, 
half the room is going to have Izzy Phoenix. So I'm going to bring maybe Dredge and Tron, which takes advantage of the London Mulligan and has a good Phoenix matchup. Yeah. I, I am not a pro player. I have not played in anything bigger than a local nine-round tournament. I don't know if you're trying to out outguess and out hate the meta at one of these, especially when there are so many weird shakeups. I think that it might seem better to stick with what you know and have a cohesive sideboard plan than go in trying to, to aiming to beat a deck that might even be that well represented. Yeah, sure. I mean, one one other thought that I had here was that um, you know, there's a there's a player named Rich Shea who is sort of a well-known vintage and legacy player who has, was tweeting about the London Mulligan over the weekend. And he mentioned that um, basically what he said was the main takeaway that he felt about the, um, the London Mulligan is that it's kind of like giving people access to cantrip mana bases in, in, or cantrip decks in decks that never had access to that kind of consistency before. And so I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about why maybe is it Phoenix might return to the pack a little bit is that people might rise up as far as consistency goes. And so something that occurred to me is that I kind of feel like Tron or Amulet might also be likely contenders for this particular. Mm-hmm. I want to touch on something that we've talked about in the past where it's something that I've struggled with and struggle with to this day where you maintain that is it Phoenix is a quote unquote fair deck. So if going by that logic, it's a fair deck. It's just a little more consistent. Bringing other decks up to the level of consistency should make it more even because it's not doing broken things like dredges like we talked about where it's dumping all these creatures into play. It's just having consistent, you know, evasive threats. So if you bring up other decks and all of a sudden they're more consistent with their removal or their own threats, well, maybe all of a sudden Is it Phoenix isn't just the poster child anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's my feeling. I mean, I just feel like if every deck is doing its thing faster or more often, then, you know, Phoenix doesn't have, especially in game one, the tools to disrupt people that profoundly. So if the whole format's getting faster, then I suspect that Phoenix probably won't be the best deck at MC London. What I think is interesting about this MC is, so like typically in standard uh, MCs slash PTs, you might see like five or six decks make up 70 to 80% of the metagame. And you would say in modern, that's pretty crazy, right? Because the metagame is typically so wide. I think perhaps due to the London Mall, we might see a consolidation of strategies, especially because there is such a number one deck in the format. So that's, I think, is going to cause people to think like I am, which is like, okay, if people are bringing... You know, if 20% of the room is Phoenix, I'm going to bring, they're going to bring the next deck and then I'm going to bring the deck that beats that. So I think that there is a hole in the metagame to be filled where someone could build a deck that has a really good main deck and sideboard that can maybe beat 70% of the room or have a good matchup against 70% of the room. And I'm going to do a little bit of a called shot and say, I think that a very tuned spirits deck is going to top eight this MC or top sixteen? Top top sixteen. Chalice in the side or no? I can't predict what the what the the tuning will be. Chalice in the side or no? <laughs> wow, man, you're really putting me on the spot here, Zach. I'm, I'm just gonna say I'm gonna say spirits top sixteen. One. I'm gonna say one spirits top sixteen, which is a lot for spirits nowadays, in my opinion. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I, I like this called shot, but I think in order for us to bring it close to this segment, I'm going to ask everybody to pick one deck that they think will be in the top four. Ooh. Dave, you go first then. I am going to pick humans with chalice in the side. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's doing well, doing very well right now. Very, very consistent deck. Going to do well. A very honorable choice, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, Dave, I'm a little upset that you said that because I was going to predict humans as well. No. Though maybe not specifically Chalice in the sideboard, but I think humans is such a consistent and powerful deck that it's almost underplayed right now. And a lot of the strategies that I see as potentially benefiting from London Mulligan, to me, they don't seem to have really strong humans matchups necessarily. Yeah. Um, so I think humans is a, a very safe bet. Do you have your own pick or do you just want to piggyback onto humans and agree with that one? I mean, I think Tron will probably, probably do it. Okay. Zach. So I think Phoenix is the safe bet and I don't make safe bets. I make risky, high interest payday bets. <laughs> this is our, our red mage, Zach. And I think we're prison. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. I think that it's a deck that is drastically scaled to the power and skill of the player and if you're playing at this obviously you're a very good player and i think it rewards someone with a very deep meta knowledge and you also you know you need to get lucky in certain situations but that's where this mulligan really helps right where you have all these pieces in the sideboard you have all these unique interacting prison pieces so if you know that you need chalice on two needed on turn two you can dig for that and you can go to four pretty reliably for that so i think that we're gonna see some super hot amazing prison play and who knows maybe in a first place win. zach i'm on board with your guess i would not bet against you uh here's i'm gonna do here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna guess spirits just to be weird just to be rogue i think i think a really good spirits player can top four this tournament um i don't think it's gonna happen um i think it's gonna be dredge but i my i'm gonna call out my my old buddy Bant Spirits and friend of the show, Steve, uh, who put this little nugget in my brain. I think a Tune Spirits list is going to do really well, this, uh, this MC. Okay. I love it. So our our top four, the dive down top four of Mythic Championship London is uh, War Prison, Humans, Spirits. Is it Phoenix? Is it Phoenix? And what is Stan pick? I picked Tron, but we've definitely just listed yeah. five Tron decks. and Tron. So we got five decks. Yeah. So our our top five. How'd we get five? Because you threw Is It Phoenix in it, even though nobody picked it. I didn't throw that in. You just, you literally just, you just you said just, that. You literally just said that. Oh, sorry. I, th- I thought someone else did. Mm. Okay. That's okay. We're keeping all this. This is all good. <laughs> all right. So there's our top five. <laughs> so. I mean, I let's just throw Dredge in there since it's positioned well under play. That's my actual so we got pick. six. And we're just so close. Yeah, we're just so close to naming a combo deck, which is just combo. Put a category on there. We're good. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, there's your there's your dose of wild speculation. With a little bit of background on why. You know, a week before it's too early. <laughs> or a week a week too early. No, we get we have we have more important wind downs next week. Yes. So. Next week we'll talk about spoilers, we promise. Guys. <laughs> all spoilers all the time. We're waiting for the complete spoiler. All right, everyone, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you to my co-host for a really good one. Listeners, I'm sick as a dog right now, so this is the best I felt in a couple days. Sorry, Stan. Thank you for, thank you for joining us on this journey. 
If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And don't forget, you can do a survey for our future Patreon. The link to that is in the show notes of this episode on our Twitter or on Reddit. So until next week, get out there and mull. Two, five. I think you should just tread carefully because Richard Garfield is in my home. So yeah, take that as you will. I'd like to talk with him about how much I miss his, his excellent podcast that was called Three Donkeys. And do you guys, any, any of you ever heard that? It was great. No. It was about game design. Was that the one all about board games? Yeah, it was yeah, really good. I've listened to that one. Yeah. It's about it was game? about games that he was working on and games that he was sort of like conjugating on, like along with Scaphalias was on it and one other game designer that he worked with. It was a really good podcast, but it was like 10 years old. Good digression.